Good morning. Uh, today's Bible readings from Matthew 27, verse 41 to 54. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we will believe him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land, around the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, leme shabachthana, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officers and other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly was the Son of God. May we reflect on God coming, Christ being God, coming down from heaven and dying for us for a moment. And we'll pray right here. Father, each of us come with different uh, thoughts about why Jesus died. And of course, the, one of the largest dilemmas in our culture right now is just to um, maybe even think that there isn't a God, or in fact there is a God, but we need to put God on trial and kill this God for letting injustice happen and suffering happen. And so, Lord, as we come to this text, we want to we hear these cries that, that Jesus cried out that tells us why he died, uh, to give us assurance of not only his death on the cross and what the cross means for us, but also the resurrection that brings hope and life. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, now that you would teach us, encourage us, and, and liberate us in all the ways that we need it. And we pray in your name. Amen. Why Jesus died. Why Jesus died. Sounds like such a serious topic, and indeed it is a serious topic. We're in a series called Camouflaged Sin. And what we've been trying to do over the Lenten season here is talk about how different sins in our lives camouflage themselves. And you might not necessarily notice certain sins in your life or our culture, but they camouflage themselves. And the, and the main thing they're saying to you is, have autonomy. 
Choose yourself. Do exactly what you want to do. Or what the hell does it even matter anyway? Uh, Who are you to judge me so I will do exactly what I want to do? Uh, We then began to talk about how uh, camouflage sin isn't necessarily things that you do that needs a slap on the wrist or change in behavior, like behavior modification, such as do better this week, try harder. That's called moralism. Self-help books talk all about that. But we talked about the sin beneath the sin. We talked about sin beneath uh, your yelling at home or your distance from people. We talked about things like pride, arrogance, lust, anger. And uh, that reveals to each of us what we're truly trusting in. And that indeed is the heart of the issue here. So as we get to today here, uh, Jesus is telling us, and all the gospel writers tell us, uh, that there is indeed a reason why Jesus died. Your culture that you live in, I live in the same one here, would say, um, you want to think Jesus died for your sins? (laughs) Great. Do it. If that works for you, wonderful. If you think Jesus died for a different reason than that, that's fine for you. Go ahead and choose that one intellectually. But I love that the gospel writers don't leave us with that option. Uh, If you're embracing the historical, uh, accurate uh, gospel writers as being the very words of God, the gospel writers don't leave us with the option of interpreting why Jesus died. And I'm going to present four cries that Jesus and we can witness here. As Jesus is on the cross, he's, he's literally dying for the sins of the world. And there are four cries. The first one is a cry of skepticism that God is dead. And the second cry is a scream of abandonment. And the third cry is a shout of love. And the fourth one is a cry that sinners get it. It's not the righteous ones, but it's sinners who actually get the good news of the gospel. So the first cry here, verse 41 through 44, you're noticing, we just heard it read. It's the religious people that are scoffing at Jesus. Real naturally, as we're reading this text, we must be thinking, well, it's the hellions out there in the crowd that are probably thinking, crucify him, kill him, be done with this Jesus, this one who's claiming to be a king. But if you're following the text and you were just alert, it's actually the religious people that are doing the scoffing. The skepticism can come from a truly uh, non-religious person, but in this text, it's coming from religious people. Those that appear to be doing the right things on the outside. Um, And what I want you to pay attention to here is the prideful posture in their heart. It's not that doubt and skepticism can't and should not exist, because we see someone like Doubting Thomas exemplifying, exemplifying wonderful skepticism. But see, Doubting Thomas's skepticism is coming from a a humility of heart that's saying, I want to know you, Jesus. If indeed you are Jesus, prove that to me. Let me see it. Help me in my unbelief, as the disciples would say in the Gospels. So scoffing at someone simply means mocking them. It's you coming home to your parents or you telling your friends, I want to be a scientist. And your friends say, you? Seriously, you, a scientist? Come on. That's what mocking someone does. That's what, that's what these religious leaders are doing when they're scoffing at Jesus here. You, Jesus, king? <laughs> Savior? Come on now. Really? Verse uh, 42 here. If he is the king. 
So there's this tremendous deep-seated doubt that he's able to be a king, and, and, and if he is, listen to this one, let him come down from the cross right now. Do it now. Show us immediately. Do it in the way exactly that we want you to do it to prove that indeed you are this king and this, this Christ. So the first option that you and I are faced with regarding why did Jesus die is he died in vain. And don't get scared. You're thinking, Troy, you're our pastor. You don't believe that, do you? Your friends, uh, my friends, family members, co-workers uh, that you and I talk with and know, uh, friends of yours that are not Christian, uh, this, is, this is one of the, 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 the thought um, patterns that's there, is that Christ died needlessly. He died foolishly. And um, Christ died in a way that's not really relevant to me. Right? Isn't that some of the feedback that you get from some of your non-Christian friends? Like, what does this message even have to do with me? It doesn't even relate to me. I can't even find myself in this story. And this is, this is the modern dilemma, is it not? That God is dead. God died or became irrelevant to us. Um, I mean, how, how tired can our thumbs get during the week of swiping this way or that way and searching here and there it's good, it helped us learn, it helped us find things that we need, but, but the soul's aching. The soul's hungry for a God who, who's going to give you more than what those things on our phone really even <laughs> promised to give us. Uh, but, the, but the modern dilemma is that God died, and basically we've, we, we've put God on trial, and we've said, it's your fault, God. Again, talk to your friends. It's, you won't necessarily find a whole lot of people saying God doesn't exist, although there are some. Most people will say, yes, God exists, and I can't stand him because he allows injustice and death and suffering to exist in our world. Therefore, he's dead to me. He doesn't exist. And uh, I think one of the reasons why that's so is a traditional view of God. See if I'm right here. A traditional view of God says if I... If I just plan my life good and I make some good decisions and I'm, more, and I'm more a moral person, God's bound to bless me, right? But what if I do those things and I still have suffering going on in my life? Or what if people that I know and love seem to be following and are following Christ, but yet there's deep, painful suffering going on for them? Three names, but you know there's more, a whole lot more. Hitler, Stalin, Mao. Just those three guys alone. Those three guys alone were responsible for the death of 200 plus million people. Think about that. Think about that. What kind of suffering and injustice and evil uh, God became dead to us and irrelevant to us because of things like those three names that I just mentioned. And that's because it looked like, it looked like, he didn't have anything uh, about suffering and injustice. He didn't care about it. Let it happen. Or the second reason was there's so many good people doing good things. What's up with suffering? Again, if these aren't your doubts, if you're wanting me to hurry up and get on to the next reason to clearly defend, and we will, the, the death of Christ, this is where... Uh, a true skeptic, this is where a non-Christian, at least in the intellectual space, is, is wandering around. God has been shelved. He's been placed on a shelf. He doesn't exist. He's irrelevant. He has nothing to say to me. 
And Paul, the writer in the New Testament, is, ex- is exactly right when he says, if that's true, if there's no resurrection, go for it. Go for it. Eat, he says, eat, drink, and be merry. Do it. Full throttle. Go wide open. Um, so, so there's a huge dilemma, uh, but that's, that, that is exactly where the cross of Christ has the answer to the modern dilemma, that the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that injustice means that God must die, but he comes to do it voluntarily. See, the skeptics are placing God on trial because God's responsible for the injustice and the suffering. Think about that. The gospel says, yes, death must happen, and I'm coming to do it. I'm coming to do it. I love this about the gospel. Eugene Peterson You've probably read some of Eugene Peterson, but Eugene Peterson says regarding the incarnation, when God became a man, he says that God moved into the neighborhood. Jesus fully took on not just living in your hood and understanding your culture or your ethnicity or your challenges, but Christ took on your very humanity, means your weaknesses and your sin, to eventually become an atoning, perfect sacrifice for it that nothing else would do. That's the gospel. That's why we're singing in here. That's why the party is going on in here. Uh, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. Do you, you familiar with this quote of Jesus? No one takes my life from me. It, it wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't those in power that tricked me or coerced me or beat me and therefore I had to just become weak all of a sudden. They got me. Jesus says, I lay my life down with joy. I do it out of joy. You want to know what motivates me? You want to know why I died? I love you. No one takes my life from me. So the gospel is, this is the only God who comes down and and shares in your forsakenness, shares in your weaknesses, shares in your suffering, shares in the injustice of the world, takes it upon himself. No other good news, no other religious leader, no other religion is saying those things. That to bear the injustice of the world and to die under it. See, we didn't kill God. God did it. God voluntarily did it. Go read Isaiah chapter 53. It pleased the Lord to crush Jesus. Why? That he would be an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. We didn't kill God. God's not dead. Notice the second cry here. Uh, A scream of abandonment, verse 46. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, a Greek word here that appears nowhere else in Scripture. It it means Jesus screamed. Is this the Jesus that you know? I thought Jesus was peaceful. I I thought Jesus was like in the boat with the storm happening all around him and was just super peaceful, right? And just so calm. Yes, that is indeed a Jesus that you know and is accurate. But notice the uniqueness here, that Jesus screams. I want you to feel that. I'm not going to mimic what I think that sounded like, but I want you to feel that. I want you to think about it. I want you to try to feel it, that Jesus screams here. And it looks like Jesus broke. It totally looks like Jesus collapses. God gave up on him. Historians know that this statement wasn't made up. But some of us, like a true San Franciscan, some of us, like a true skeptic, would say, guess what? 
historians and gospel writers actually did make up this whole thing. But let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Um, and And it seems like a horrible marketing strategy. You've heard me say this before. But if the founder of your religion or the founder of your global organization um, had done something amazing and you wanted to tell about him, would you, would you end the story with saying, um, as Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that how you would talk about your founder? And so it seems so unlikely that these gospel writers would actually include that because it actually happened. It actually happened. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. Go back and read, homework, go back and read Psalm 22. Jesus isn't just randomly making stuff up in his mind. He's quoting scripture. Psalm 22 is what he says here as he's crying out to them. Um, so this passion, this, this, I mean, when we think about passion here, modern-day San Francisco, a passion, we think of heavy breathing, right? Let's be honest. We think of heavy breathing. We think of passion lipstick. We think of Calvin Klein passion perfume that's going on here. Uh, But passion here for Jesus, as we enter in a couple weeks here into Passion Week, passion is deep love, and it always entails suffering. You ever notice that, that someone who deeply loves you is going to suffer for you? They must. That's That's just how it happens. If you didn't know that, I'm here to tell you. Someone who deeply loves you, there's a cost that's being paid for that love. It's free to receive it, but very costly for the one who gives it. No different here when Jesus. And so when he screams, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or why have you forsaken me? Notice he doesn't say, my head, my head, or my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet. See, this isn't just physical suffering. This isn't just physical suffering that Jesus is going through. He's been beaten, and yet he's never raised his voice about his physical suffering. Not one time. He's screaming, though. He's all of a sudden screaming, my God, my God. Uh, It's not about a psychological suffering. He doesn't say, my friends, my friends, my betrayers, my betrayers, my deniers, my deniers. It's not to be psychologicalized. He is under an infinite spiritual suffering. That's what's going on here with Jesus. Why is he dying? There's a spiritual suffering and even separation that Jesus is experiencing here. So when he raises his voice, that's exactly what's going on. Look at verse 45. Darkness fell across the whole land. Darkness is there, emblematic of what was happening to Jesus spiritually. Go back and read this. Go back and think about this. Biblical writers describe this as eternal lostness or hell. And you and I think, wait a minute, did Jesus experience hell? Yes. Yes. Jesus experienced hell for you. Um, I want to say this too, that um, when we think about hell, hell and heaven are not in time. You ever think about that? It's not like you can imagine, I wonder what heaven would be like if I were there for three hours. Or hell, I wonder if I experienced hell for like three seconds. I'd probably come back and be, I'd probably love God more. Uh, Heaven and hell are not in time. They're they're more like spiritual conditions that one experiences when God's presence isn't fully there with them. The abandonment that Jesus is experiencing. You're feeling that. You're getting that. 
So when you go to heaven or hell, for the, there's no such thing as three hours or three minutes. Therefore, Jesus would have experienced an infinity of suffering in those moments on the cross. That didn't last an infinity. It wasn't an eternity of suffering that he went through. But he's experiencing hell for you. That's why Jesus is dying. The consequence for sin promised long ago, even in Genesis 3, where sin begins to enter into the story. Death will enter the story, he says. Yet there was even good news in Genesis chapter 3. Yet there's going to be a seed. There's a promised one who will come, who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the promise of the gospel showing up really early on in Scripture. No one has ever done what Jesus is doing here. No other religious leader. If you were to line up a religious leader, every single one of them would tell you, oh, that's unique. We'd like to have that as a selling point, but we don't have that one. No one is doing what Jesus has ever done. No one's ever been cast away from God's presence in the way that Jesus is being cast away. Amazing. I mean, think about the very sunlight. I mean, you think about a plant or you think about a tree that, that, that without literally for a half a second, without the sun's light, it dies. You and I probably die without the sun, the sun's light. It's amazing how that works. And we know that if your friend rejects you, if that's ever happened for you, that's, that's horrible, isn't it? It's terrible to experience that. If your wife abandons you, your spouse abandons you, I've been told that's even more catastrophic to one's emotional state. God leaving Jesus, as it were, God placing all the sins on Jesus for those moments and hours are so much more horrific than what any separation that you and I have ever been through. So no soul has ever been through that. Again, Psalm 22, I'm going to read some of it here for you. Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why? Why? Have you abandoned me? Why are you so far when I groan for your help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on God? Then let God save him. If God loves him so much, let God rescue him. And if you keep reading through Psalm 22, you'll read that it ends this way. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise Him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to Him. All families of the nations will bow down before Him. For royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. What was Jesus screaming about? Not physical pain necessarily, although he was physical. It wasn't psychological abandonment, although it felt like it. It was infinite spiritual suffering that he was going through. And since he was saying, I'm suffering infinitely, and though it feels like God is damning me because of the sins of the world, I will trust in your plan, O God. I will carry on. I will go on with the mission that you've given me because... I love these people. They are indeed my passion. So the next coming weeks, we hear about the passion of Christ. What is it? It's you. You, Do you hear that? 
Do you hear that? You are the passion of Christ. You are the passion of Christ. This week, I want you to rehear that. When everything around you is crumbling, or when things are going really successful, you are the passion of Christ. He died because of deep, deep love for you. And that's the third cry here, a shout of love. A shout of love. Verse 50 kind of leaves you with a cliffhanger. It says, when Jesus cried out, but do you notice with me, it doesn't tell us what he said. <laughs> it doesn't say at all what he says. And that's why we need all the gospel writers. And if you turn to John chapter 19, it tells you what that cry was all about. And that cry was, it is finished. This is the loudest shout of love, the it is finished. And to understand this, we need to look at verse 51 here, that the temple is key in understanding all this. Temple uh, means that barriers were everywhere in those Old Testament uh, temple. Women could only go so far in the temple. They couldn't get all the way back to where God was. Gentiles could only go so far in that temple, yet they couldn't go all the way. If you were a Jewish male, you got a little bit closer, but not all the way. If you were a priest, you could get a little farther, but it was only the high priest, and it was only once a year could that great high priest or high priest go into the Holy of Holies with his knees knocking in fear that God's holiness would consume him. The temples tell us basically in the Old Testament no access, limited access. No matter how hard you cleanse or wash or have all these offerings, you still don't go all the way in. And here's the gospel. Here's where the gospel comes right into this text where it says that this curtain that split, notice that it splits from top to bottom. And that is unique, wonderful, powerful imagery that it's God who's done the cleansing for you. It's God who's done the work for you. So when Jesus says it is finished, what this means is you add, I add nothing to the death of Christ for your salvation. Nothing. It's not the the death of Christ plus I'm going to try damn hard this week. It's not the death of Christ plus, man, I hope I do a good job. It's the death of Christ only for the atonement for your sins. This is the gospel. Jesus was cast out, so to speak, so that you might be welcomed in. That's the good news. Of Christ. Jesus was rejected so that you can be brought in, that you belong, that you matter. It is finished, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus' last words on the cross uh, is the exact opposite of, of Buddha's last words. Some of my close friends are, are Buddhist, and we've had these conver- conversations, really great, loving conversations. But Buddhist scriptures would say, Strive without ceasing. Those are pretty much some of the last words of Buddha. Strive without ceasing. And Jesus' last words are, don't you dare keep striving. Don't you dare keep striving. I've already strived for you. Everything required of you has already happened. I did it for you. It is finished. Believe in that. That's the unique difference. So the hint here. This is an application. If you're waiting for somebody to say, well, yeah, what do I go and do? Here it is. The hint here is for those of you, and that's me included, who work too hard, who are overcommitted, who try to please everyone about being good, yet we feel guilty 
we're trying to finish it, aren't we? We're trying to add a little something extra there to the death of cross or to the death of Christ on the cross. Stop it already. Enough. It is finished. That the cross gives us the perfect example. Yes, obey. Yes, obey. You have that desire within you to obey. Yet obey because Christ has died for you. Don't obey so that you and I may get a standing with God or be justified before God. I just ask a simple question. Do you want to obey because it is finished? Does that just propel you forward in obeying Christ? Or do you want to obey so that it will be finished? It takes some thought and reflection. The lastly, the fourth cry is that sinners get it. Sinners just get it. Again, read the story. Read all of the gospel stories. I love how the Bible really underscores how you essentially have two groups of people. One group gets it, the other one, they don't get it. And it's usually the religious folks that don't get it. But it's the outsiders who end up getting it. Verse 47 and 48, people hear Jesus say in Aramaic, but it sounds like the short word for Elijah. So they thought Jesus was calling for Elijah. That's not what's going on. They miss it completely. (laughs) Yet two other groups who are outsiders, they end up getting it. It's the Romans, the pagans, the women, the Gentiles. Those people who are outsiders on the fringe, they end up getting the good news of the gospel. Verse 54, they end up exclaiming, surely he is the Son of God. Surely. There's an assurance of all the people in the narrative here. They're the ones who get it. And at first reading, cursory reading, you're expecting them to not get it. And the religious leaders to get it. And it's the exact opposite. The outsiders got it, and it mimics Jesus' words earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 12, where he says, healthy people, healthy people, they don't need a doctor. Meaning morally and kind of how you feel justified of how you go through life. If you're already healthy, if you've already dealt with your own sins by doing more good than bad, Jesus saying, summarizing him, I can't help you. You're already helping yourself. To finish his quote, he says, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. It's sick people. And we don't mean that like the modern, that was sick. He's sick. No, this kind of sick ain't good. This kind of sick is kind of, you and I are plagued with a cancerous sin of heart. That's you. That's me. Outsiders get it. We can go to church for years. We can be uh, the one behind the microphone. We, we can be leaders in the church. We can do all these things and yet realize, you know what? I, I, I don't know that I get it. Like that slippery bar of soap that I, 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 oop, I thought I had it, but I, I don't know that I get it. You, you can think I'm an outsider. This was me in college at my conversion and has been for some of you at your conversion. You can think I'm an outsider and God's going to stay right there on the shelf, right where he belongs. I'm not giving him any space in my life because he's irrelevant. And yet, you get it. God's mercy can break into that autonomy and say, I want to reveal myself to you in a way that you hadn't imagined. And you finally get it. 
Final takeaway and application is get in the scriptures. Sounds generic and basic to say that, but again, as we follow Jesus, especially in this narrative, if you were pushed, if you were under pressure, if I were the one there, and thank God we weren't, but in our pressure, what is it that comes out of us? Right? We talked about that a little bit last week with everyone has a release valve of what sort of pressure will come out of us. You know what comes out of Jesus? God's word. When experiencing hell for you and me, it's Psalm 22 that comes literally right out of his mouth. Get in the scriptures, all of us, and there see how the cross helps us with every problem, every problem that you're going through. Take it right back to the cross. Take it right back to the gospel and receive that good news. Surely he is the son of God. And let the cross be a source of power in your life. Let's pray that right now. Father, we do. We, we desire for the cross and the message of Jesus here that it is finished. That Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, would liberate us. Would liberate us to joyful obedience as we follow you, our God. And we pray that you'd remind us that it is, it is truly finished. We are totally accepted by your love and your suffering on our behalf. And we pray in your name, King Jesus, amen.